Hello, and welcome back to Somebody Call a Doctor, a podcast stemmed in curiosity, where we interview new PhDs and PhD candidates to better understand the diverse research topics being studied and talk about the impact their outcomes will have on technology and society. I'm your host, Colin Andrews. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Caitlin Syme about wearable computing and haptics. Dr. Syme is a postdoctoral research fellow at Stanford University, where she collaborates with Allison Okamura and Martin Lonsberg. She received her PhD in computing from the Georgia Institute of Technology, where her dissertation focused on wearable computing and motor skill training. She's been recognized for her work by the National Science Foundation, Microsoft Research, and Google. Her research interests include technology-based treatments for motor disabilities, haptic training to enhance skill acquisition, brain-computer interfaces, and the next generation of human-integrated electronics. We'll be talking about her research and its implications and ask her why you'd call her if somebody said, somebody call a doctor. And now, welcome, Caitlin. Caitlin, welcome to the show. Thanks. Let's start out with just give a quick background of who you are, what you're, what you're up to. Okay. My name is Caitlin Syme, and I work on wearable computing and haptics and applying that to rehabilitation as well as motor skill training. Okay. So what exactly is wearable computing? Well, my research focuses on wearable computing, and in this field, which includes everything from cochlear implants to fitness trackers, we design small, unobtrusive devices that are closely coupled with the human body. And personally, I target designing accessible devices that solve existing challenges. So wearable computing has some specific advantages just because of the form factor. So wearable devices are designed so they can be with us always. And they're lightweight, unobtrusive, and closely coupled with the human body. Now, many people use wearable computing devices for sensing or input to your devices. I think you're familiar with Fitbit or your smartwatch, maybe provides you some alerts. But some of my research most recently has been focused on using wearable devices to provide stimulation. So as you were talking about, stimulation from electronic device is a form of haptics. So what is haptics? Haptics mm-hmm. is kind of computer-enabled touch interaction. Now, this can encompass everything from force feedback you get from a joystick, say, which can even be used in things like robotic-assisted surgery, and it can include simulation for virtual reality. You can have some apparatuses that limit your limb movement so you can have a realistic simulation. And it can also include things like effective or sensory stimulation, such as what I'm working with. So a lot of people in this field work in providing alerts or work in virtual reality. But I like to combine haptics and wearable computing. And this actually provides some more unique advantages. So, you know, I was talking about the advantages of wearable computing. And when you combine wearable computing and haptic stimulation, you can get stimulation for extended periods of time while you wear a wearable device. Or you can get stimulation in the background of other tasks. For instance, in your daily life, you could be wearing a wearable device. And in the background of your daily life, you could be getting stimulation. So 
by combining these two fields, you get some even more unique angles to this. And stimulation can be anything from assisting one of your muscles with a task. It seems like there's a really wide range of where it could be applied. That is true. Yes, that is true. A lot of people work in electrical stimulation, which can be a number of different levels. So you can provide electrical stimulation that's a high enough amplitude to actually activate your muscles and cause them to contract even without your voluntary control, which is interesting. Some call this functional electrical stimulation. There are apparatuses for this, such as bicycles that can help your leg muscles move the bike, even if you might have some paralysis in your leg. And, you know, there's some robotic devices that might use electrical, functional electrical stimulation to activate your muscles and can kind of control your hands without your conscious kind of control. And then there's kind of more lower level electrical stimulation, which is more afferent electrical stimulation, which is like sensory stimulation. So you can use electrical stimulation to activate some of your sensory organs in your skin. And you can provide a number of different sensations using this. And if you want to talk about other forms of stimulation, I mean, there's a lot of research, you know, there's skin stretch, there's force feedback stimulation. And what I'm working on right now is essentially mechanical stimulation or vibration, high frequency mechanical stimulation. And so that's a little bit less invasive than electrical stimulation, which could be seen as advantageous because not everybody wants to be shocked. Isn't that true? (laughs) Yeah, that's probably true. So is your research focus, it seems like you can use this for rehabilitation, like recovery from injury or something like that, but it can also be used to augment daily life for people who, yeah, and any sort of augmentation. What is your research focused on? Yeah, so I'll give you a little timeline or kind of what leads up to my rehabilitation work. I've investigated this mechanical vibrotactile stimulation. That's kind of a big word for it, but, (laughs) you know, just vibrotactile stimulation, I think, is a good way to call it. And I actually spent most of my PhD focusing on using this and combining it with wearable computing to enable some motor skill training. So in haptics, sometimes people work on virtual reality or simulating tasks. And sometimes people apply that research to learning skills, which can be everything from operating a spacecraft to doing surgery. And so that's kind of called haptic training. And that's kind of a subfield of haptics. And so what I focused on was kind of a form of haptic training enabled by wearable computing. And we call this passive haptic training. Mm -hmm. Now, it sounds extra mysterious and interesting because what we do is we use these tactile cues, basically. Tactile cues apply to your body parts. And by using the wearable device, we can apply these tactile cues again and again, even while you're focused on other tasks. So, for instance, you could be driving home wearing a wearable stimulation device, talking to your friends, giving this presentation right now. In our studies, we even had people take the SAT, which I'm sure the participants loved. (laughs) But that makes the 
training or learning passive, we say, because it's not requiring your active attention to kind of train your body parts. And instead, it's kind of in the background of other tasks. What's an example of what sort of training is happening? Like what what are you able to train in the background? I'm mostly talking about motor skills, but I'll just touch on a couple of the interesting things that can go beyond motor skills. When I say motor skills or motor tasks, I'm talking about more physical activities, such as things you use your hands for or things you use your fingers for, like typing or playing the piano. A lot of my work is focused on the fingers because we do a lot with our hands and we do a lot with our fingers. They're very essential to everything we do. Some of my projects have focused on training things like playing songs on the piano or typing on a keyboard. Those are motor tasks using your body parts, your fingers. So I investigate this passive happy training for motor skills like that. And just to make it completely simple, it's really kind of intuitive. We're using tactile cues to teach your body parts and, you know, physical activities. It's all about your tactile sensation and moving your body parts. And by applying the cues directly to the body parts that do the activity, I mean, some people in haptics say it might provide an advantage because rather than, say, reading from a sheet of paper how to do a physical activity, applying the cues directly to your body parts can be advantageous, perhaps. Anyway, I think you were asking a little bit more about the applications. So, yeah, yeah. So, are you are you working with people who are undergoing rehabilitation, or is this a general user who wants to learn how to play the piano or to type faster or whatever the application is? That's a great question. I guess we can kind of divide my most recent work into two parts. One is kind of for the everyday user, and then one is actually for users who've had a stroke or need some rehabilitation such as that because stroke and some other brain injuries can actually affect your motor function or your physical function too. I think people might be a little bit curious about how this passive haptic training works. And I just really want to tell people about how essentially simple it is. You know, it sounds mysterious because we're applying the cues in the background and people essentially undergo training while they're focused on other tasks. So it's like, wow, passive learning, learning from stimuli that are not your focus of attention, which we have all done. I mean, sitting in a room with some audio or a TV, you might even be listening to this podcast while you're doing something else right now. And you can be, of course, picking up things that are not your focus of attention. So maybe you're focusing on your work right now, but you're listening to this podcast and you're still picking up what you hear the audio in the background. Yeah, I've always had so, your textbook under the pillow, right, when you're sleeping and <laughs> absorb the information. Yeah, and you know, that sounds so mysterious, but it's really very simple. By using the wearable device, we can apply these cues for extended periods of time, as I mentioned. So that can enable extensive repetition. So we can essentially, the way I teach these skills or the way I design these apparatuses to teach these skills is I choose like a motor skill that we want to learn. And right now it has to be like simple and discreet, probably. It's preferable to be simple and discreet, such as, you know, these typing tasks. That's very discreet rather than something more continuous, like 
how to hit a baseball. That's how it's more difficult to convey via tactile stimulation, if you think about it. It's probably more different depending on the person as well. It seems like with a keyboard, every every person might do that the same way, whereas swinging a baseball bat is different based on people's body types and, and just how they're built. That is such a great point because in this work, working with people's bodies and computing devices, I just think it's so perfect to say that it's a balance of physiology and practicality because physiology, you're working with the body. In the rehabilitation work, which I'll touch on in a second, it's even more in-depth. We're trying to maximize some activation of certain sensory receptors. But at the same time, there's only certain electronic components that are small enough to be made into a wearable device. Only certain components that can be supported with small batteries. So it's a balance of physiology and practicality. It's just a continuous balancing problem. So to do this haptic training, you choose your simple motor skill, such as playing a short song on the piano, say, for example. And how I recommend doing it right now is then you take that task and you break it into parts. And then you teach each one small part one at a time using that intensive repetition that you can get from the wearable device. So essentially, it's pretty simple. You take the skill, translate it into cues, tactile cues for your body parts, and then repeat those cues and teach one part at a time. So it makes a lot of sense, I think, intuitively perhaps, to design these interfaces that, you know, use this. While you're applying these cues again and again in the background, even if, you know, your body is moving and even if your contact with the wearable device might vary, because of the intensive repetition, it kind of provides the cues repetitively to your body parts. And, you know, just anecdotally, like my participants kind of have an immediate association of, say, a meaning and those body parts, for instance. You know, we use this also to teach Braille typing, which oh, well. nobody nobody really knows about. But for those with low vision or blindness, you know, everybody might need to read Braille, which is the tactile dot you read with your fingers. Mm-hmm. And those are produced using a keyboard, of course, because that's a language. You type it on a keyboard. And so, you know, we trained people to type the alphabet on the Braille keyboard. The Braille keyboard is actually very complicated. You don't have to move your fingers. You just keep them on one row. But to produce each letter, you have to press multiple buttons down at a time. So to produce every letter, it could be three or five buttons. That's wow. pretty complicated. So we trained their fingers, you know, using this one part at a time, repetition, passive, happy training method. And so, you know, even while they were focused on this memory game, they train their body parts by like an audio cue, say G, and then stimulate the fingers for G. Yeah. H, stimulate the fingers for H. F, stimulate the fingers for F. And just using that simple method, you know, they were able to learn how to type the entire alphabet in Braille in less than four hours. Wow. That's so actually, I'm curious if we can kind of shift to talking about results. So I'm curious about two parts of results. How well were people able to learn the applications like piano, like Braille, Braille typing? But also, you mentioned people were t- taking the SATs when they were going through the stimulation. How did undergoing the stimulation impact the cognitive load that they were using to do things like the SAT? Did it impact their scores? That's such a great question. So 
did the stimulation distract them from their primary task of the SAT or the memory game or if there's been scavenger hunts and things? We we try to use a scored metric like the SAT and we compare, you know, those who receive stimulation to those who don't receive stimulation to make sure not so much that, you know, this method is inherently passive and that you're attending to it 0%. We're not suggesting that because we're actually looking at this as an engineering solution and the potential Mm -hmm. here. And instead, you know, we find that those who receive stimulation and those that don't receive stimulation perform, you know, not significantly differently on the primary task, which is great. And I think what you can extrapolate from that is that there's functionality that could be here using a training method like this. So essentially, that might suggest that receiving the stimulation doesn't degrade the performance of your primary task. And that's what we really want to know. Because in putting out this method, we're really just suggesting a potentially exciting method of haptic training. And the fact that you can also perform a primary task at the same time, or, you know, even if it was a minimal degradation of performance, it could still be very interesting. So the fact that, you know, they can perform that other task at the same time is really cool. And I think it speaks more to practicality than cognition even, because actually I'm really just starting to get into the cognition side of it more now. And so there's a lot of interesting questions there too. Yeah. I mean, it seems like there's a ton of questions opening up. There's so many combinations of how do you bring this into something that's not just passive in the background? How can you augment the main task and make it part of somebody's day-to-day life where they're using this as a positive augmentation to what they're doing. Yeah, totally. So, you know, even before we move on to the rehab side, I just want to point out two things that interest me and it might just interest the listeners too. So what I find interesting is that even though we're training the body parts to do the task, we can also sometimes test the participants on kind of explicit or declarative information that's encoded in the haptics. So for instance, I was talking about Braille and Braille, the keyboard, it's directly related to the dots that you read with your fingers. So everybody wants to be able to read the dots with their fingers. Actually, the National Federation of the Blind calls it a Braille literacy crisis right now because blind and low vision individuals are not able to get much access to education and everything. And so essentially only 10% of the blind learn Braille, which is as the National Federation calls it a crisis. So, you know, I said, I want to test them on reading Braille. Now, reading Braille, how is that connected to typing Braille? But, you know, I just mentioned that it's, it's related. Actually, the keys on the keyboard relate to the dots. It's directly related. So by giving them like a key, I said, look at this key. Now try to read this Braille. And what they were able to do is essentially extract the explicit information or what the dots are from the tactile cues. So they were able to read like 94% of the Braille alphabet after the training as well. Yeah, so that's really cool. It's really cool to me because that means, say you encoded a little information in a haptic stimulation, 
We also use Google Glass and smartwatches to train Morse code, which is actually very widely used, not only as an accessibility technology, but even in maritime communication still. But so, you know, just by providing some tactile cues for dots and dashes of Morse code, you know, that's a, a language where every letter is represented by essentially a time pattern of dots and dashes, which are undifferentiated signals. If you think of it as a haptic pattern, it kind of becomes a rhythm. So say every letter is a rhythm. We use, say, SmartWatch to train some of these rhythms on people. And, you know, they were also able to produce this explicit information. They were able to feel the rhythm and then write down what it encoded, like translated into dots and dashes. So that's really interesting to me because we're not only able to train the body parts, but, you know, if we can encode some information in the haptics, then they can feel that tactile training and even kind of extrapolate the explicit information, which is interesting to me as a scientist, too. Oh, my gosh, that's that's incredibly interesting. <laughs> you're, you're bringing in different sensory experiences to learning process that isn't necessarily built. I mean, the, the way that I would assume you learn Morse code or Braille or whatever it is, is probably mostly looking at the letters and then trying to eventually map that to reading and, and actually going across. But when yeah, you totally. start bringing in rhythm and other parts of the brain, I'm, it's really interesting. That's an interesting point, actually. There's a lot more to be explored here cognitively. Everything from, you know, what are the sensory receptors activated by the stimulation, for instance? This stimulation might activate some of the sensory fibers that are activated during normal movement. So if you provide the stimulation, it could be providing in part the same feedback to your brain as when you actually move your fingers, if that makes sense. And then, as you mentioned, involving other parts of the brain like rhythm and timekeeping, sounds like you know a thing or two. So involving the other parts of your brain involving rhythm and timekeeping that might be an interesting thing to think about as well. Could could influence the strength of the memory. Who knows? There's a lot to be thought of here. It's I I particularly am interested in the sensory receptor side of it because that applies to the rehabilitation I'm investigating yeah. right now. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. So 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 many directions that we can go here, but I, we should probably just kind of keep showing along. So you talked about your devices and what you're doing being used in rehabilitation. How have you seen some of what you've done impact the lives of people in your trials? Yeah. So would you like me to explain the project probably? Sure. Yeah. Let's, let's use an example for sure. So leading from this, you know, there's a lot more we could talk about just about the motor skill training. But what I wanted to answer next was, can we use these same advantages in wearable computing to provide an advantage to rehabilitation. So by using a wearable device to provide stimulation for extended periods of time, that could allow extensive repetition of stimulation. And by using a wearable device to provide stimulation in the background of daily life, you could get this stimulation on the go, at home, while you're doing other tasks. Yeah. And so there's actually some interest in rehabilitation 
using this fibrotactile or tactile stimulation as a potential technique to help improve function when you have problems moving your hands, problems moving your arms. And so can we use these angles and wearable computing to provide advantages to rehabilitation? So that brings me to my work right now with stroke. So let me tell you a little bit about stroke. I think people know about it, but there's some interesting points, I think. So, you know, when you have a stroke, it's essentially often a blood clot in the brain or it could be a bleed in the brain. And during that time, part of your brain dies. Mm-hmm. And because each part of the brain controls a specific function, you might lose that function. And so actually, it's interesting because of the vascular orientation of the brain, strokes often strike the sensory motor area. And so a lot of people who have stroke end up having these chronic physical symptoms, which are essentially paralysis, sometimes one-sided weakness or problems using parts of their body. And, you know, this actually, it's actually a leading cause of disability globally, as well as in the United States. Some say it's the number one cause of disability in the United States, which is profound because, I mean, we know there are millions of strokes every year, almost upwards of 16 million strokes every year. And so it's incredibly common. And so, especially with the medical advancements nowadays, more survivors are able to progress after stroke. And, you know, if they're able to survive their stroke, then that means more people with some physical disability from this stroke. So when you have a stroke and after you get out of the hospital and you might be having some one-sided paralysis or problems using your body, the thing that people really want most is to be able to use their hands because, you know, we use our hands for everything. And believe it or not, it's even difficult to just use one hand when you don't have another hand to work against that. So my research is targeting the hands and arm function of individuals after stroke. And that's one of the first, I'm sure, with just how dexterous hands are. Those must be be some of the first motor functions that are lost. Every stroke is different, and it's entirely related to where the blood clot or bleed is in your brain. So it's completely related to that. It's all about the location (laughs) in the brain. And so to talk about some scientific insights, there's kind of some interest stirring in using stimulation to help people get back their arm and hand function after stroke. And that's kind of twofold, actually, because stroke recovery, it's funny. There's a lot of potential for recovery, but few people can achieve that because there's a lot of barriers to a successful recovery from a stroke. A lot of people have to drive hours to get to a clinic. To successfully have rehabilitation, you need to have intensive rehabilitation. So that means often you might need inpatient visits or frequent visits, or you might need to design your life around rehabilitation. Now, like you, like you said, everybody's stroke and, and their symptoms and afterwards are different, right? So it's not like you can build your own program. You need, you need specialists. Well said. Absolutely. And, you know, insurance limits coverage. You know, they might only allow you to have one visit a week or two visit, visits a week, only for mm-hmm. six months. 
only in that clinic that's two hours away. And, you know, it might be challenging for your family members to drop what they're doing and drive you to the clinic every time. It might be impossible for you to get that rehabilitation that you need. And even just adhering to those protocols of rehabilitation, it can be exhausting. The gold standard of therapy right now is actually it's called constraint-induced movement therapy. And it's where you actually restrain your good arm. So, you know, stroke survivors usually have weakness in one side of their body. Mm-hmm. So you restrain your good arm and you force use of your diminished arm oh, function. Wow. Yeah. So that's very challenging. It's challenging. And, and is that although, a daily level, like while, while you're getting ready in the morning type thing, or is this only at <laughs> your rehabilitation? Actually, it's best to do that six to eight hours a day wow. in inpatient rehab for at least two weeks more. I mean, always, always more. Actually, it just has to become a lifestyle after that. You just have to do it constantly. I'd say use it or lose it kind of thing. Yeah. It's challenging. And what I want to do is I want to open up and explore technology-enabled methods to improve rehabilitation, not just for stroke survivors, but right now focused on stroke. So we're looking at using a wearable device to provide stimulation and seeing if that stimulation can help you recover some of your arm function. And, you know, talking about the practicality side of it, the wearable device is designed to be mobile. It's designed to be used outside of the clinic. Simple to use. I mean, this is the objective of the project. We want to provide more accessible rehabilitation. That's the goal. We're working on that on a number of levels, you know. It's that balance of physiology and practicality again. So we're we're investigating the potential in this stimulation technique as a treatment and seeing whether it helps users. I'm definitely excited about it. And then, you know, we're building wearable devices to provide the stimulation at length outside a clinical environment so people can try it on the go. You know, I just completed a preliminary study with people in Atlanta where I gave them a wearable device in the form of a glove to wear on their disabled arm three hours every day for two months. And we investigated whether that had any measurable impact on the clinical outcomes. And yeah, we're excited to continue investigating its potential impact on sensory perception. So that's like how you can feel in your arm, as well as movement and impact on something called tone and spasticity. That's a that's a problem that about half of individuals who have physical symptoms encounter. It's a progressive condition where your muscles contract involuntarily. So you might see some stroke survivors where their arms are curled up a little bit, and they actually can't get them uncurled because their muscles are activating rather out of control. So we're seeing if this can actually calm those muscles down a little bit. At this point, when you give somebody a glove, we talked about how individual needs are in rehabilitation. When you give somebody a glove, are you providing just kind of passive muscle stimulation throughout the day, or are you training for specific tasks at specific times? That's a great question. Right now, we're providing stimulation throughout the day, three hours. Yeah. But an interesting idea is that if we take individuals with high enough dexterity or high enough dexterity at the end of using the device. We could throw in some learning as well with it, you know, by flavoring the therapy with perhaps 
piano learning, you know, yeah. if they receive the stimulation, but it, if it also is training a song, then that could add kind of an upbeat and fun angle to sure, the, yeah. the therapy. But what's really cool. Therapy a little bit. Yes, exactly. It's really important to have a positive outlook during rehabilitation. Yeah. It influences your outcomes truly. And what's even more interesting by providing the stimulation without even encoding a specific task, we're actually taking individuals who aren't eligible for the other therapies or techniques or treatments right now. So in my preliminary study, we took people who had more moderately to severely diminished function. So they weren't able to use their fingers individually, or they weren't able to open their hands very much. And by using the wearable device, you know, it was an accessible study to them rather than studies that require them to move their hand a lot. You know, half, about half of people aren't eligible for the more exercise-based therapies because they don't have that much movement left. So it's pretty cool that this could potentially be accessible. And and yeah. that's the cohort I recruited in the first study. So we, we talked a lot about kind of the process of doing this and what the technology is doing. What are some tangible results that you saw or lack of results in certain populations or whatever it is? How is this helping people? What's the outcome? I don't want to share too much, yet, yeah. but my participants are very excited. We think this could have a significant impact on sensory function. Mm-hmm. and potentially tone and spasticity. I don't want to say more. <laughs> okay. So your, your research is coming out shortly? Classified. Right? <laughs> okay. <Yeah. laughs> well, it seems like just the way you're speaking about it, that you've seen positive results, and I'm excited to see what those actually quantify to be. You know, I think the potential in this space, just developing new technologies for rehabilitation, I think the potential in that space is enormous. And I really am excited to potentially impact, you know, users who have diminished arm function or leg function. I feel really compelled and I feel like there's so much potential for recovery just because of the nature of the brain and the nervous system in mm-hmm. certain certain disabilities that hopefully technology can tap into that. And I'm very excited about it. That's great. So my background's in machine learning, artificial intelligence. So I'm curious how you're using data that I'm sure you're getting to personalize the experience, to figure out what's working with what's not, how to experiment. Are you using some of those sorts of technologies and methods to make your research more effective? That's a great question. Right now, they're primarily using the onboard sensors to monitor adherence as well as collect some data on their movement. I think there's a lot more that could be extrapolated there. But, you know, what's interesting is Some current clinical techniques in rehabilitation are just a little bit more subjective and they're based on physical assessment by a clinician. But I'm working in the mechanical engineering department at the moment and talking to some of the researchers who blend engineering and rehabilitation. And we can use some of those techniques as well as even just mechanical devices to collect better data on movement and really put a a quantitative side to it where it's kind of a more subjective world of clinical standards at the moment. And that really needs to be brought into the 21st century. Yeah. Well, there's so many directions you can go. It seems like there's so many exciting things you can do with what you're doing that trying to 
balance exploring and like really making sure that you understand your solution and how it works, I'm sure is a difficult thing to do. Oh, yeah, that's funny you should mention that because I'm an engineer by training. Yeah. And so I'm completely comfortable making these devices, making the considerations of wearable computing, which are numerous and variable, everything from power, heat dissipation, battery life, circuit size, then even social comfort, physical comfort. So that's the engineering side of it. But I'm really getting baptism by fire or something in the neuroscience side of it, because what's really cool is that potentially using these devices could help us learn a little bit more about the human body. Because, yeah, because believe it or not, we just, we know little about how our own bodies work still, our bodies and our minds. And for instance, conus spasticity, that problem with overactive muscles, we're still figuring out the details on what all is going on there. But potentially this investigation using stimulation and exploring the pathways could shed some light on what's happening in that disorder, what's happening when people have that. So I really like how it can inform potentially our knowledge of the human body and brain as well. Yeah. How exciting. I mean, so, so many directions. I I wish we could, we could explore all of them today, but it sounds like you're balancing that as well. Trying to figure out what to focus on. Yeah. That's why I love research though, because you can do all of it. You can answer those questions. Yeah. So, I mean, it seems like with kind of the wearable renaissance we're going through that some of the things like batteries and other people are working on those and you'll be able to take advantage of them. What do you see with your future in research in this space? Like, what are you going to be doing in the next, in the coming years? I am really interested in the integration of humans and technology. If you think about wearable computing, right now it's a little bit on the surface, like you wear it like a bracelet, you wear it like a necklace. But in the not-so-distant future, we're going to be more integrated with the body. Yeah. That happens on a small scale. Now, cochlear implants, pacemakers, machines for diabetes, that's all very exciting to me. I'm also interested in prosthetics and, like, prosthetic control. There's a lot of interesting ways you can, while we're exploring how to interface, say, a robotic prosthesis with your arm muscles or your chest muscles or directly with your brain. We're exploring that and there's not a specific answer to that right now, but that interface, the connection between the technology and the body, whether it be stimulation or a different mechanism, it really interests me. And that's where I'm going. Uh, that's great. I mean, it's, it goes as important as rehabilitation is, you, you start getting into augmentation and uh, enhancement which is a scary topic. And I think we need, to, we need to discuss the moral pieces, moral side of that too, but is really exciting of just kind of the, where we could go with it and where you are going with it. I'm enthused. <laughs> I'm very enthused right now. So how can listeners of this podcast support your mission in their everyday lives? How could they get involved? How could they learn more? What can they do if they care about this and make it happen? Yeah, so I read this question when you gave it to me. And to me, I really, I'm a little bit biased, but I really see it from an academic side. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important that everybody recognizes the importance of research and how 
researchers, academics, are actually driving forward society's knowledge. Without science and research, we wouldn't be learning new things. And everything we know today is based on basically the experimentation and research that's been done before. So it's really important to support academia research because in your everyday life, you're going to want new things. You might need new things. And those things are developed by researchers. Now, I think a lot of your listeners might be also interested in being academics themselves. And for me, that's really close to my heart because what I discovered during my PhD is not that I only love engineering and making new devices, but I also really like the mentorship and advising that goes into academia. Yeah. So I really want to encourage everybody who's interested in doing academic research or any form of science research to pursue that. I personally am kind of on a small scale, ever growing, trying to open doors for both kind of your standard researcher as well as people who might feel like they're a little bit less traditional or might fit in less in research, for instance, women, perhaps. I mentor students on, you know, a medium scale. I've had a nice little lab going at Georgia Tech, which is where I did my PhD. And I just really want to show many people who are different that they can join too. And I want to make my lab a safe space. And maybe someone's listening going, I don't know if I feel completely comfortable in this environment. I tried this one lab and it didn't work. Yeah. I really want to empower anyone who has interest and passion. That's what you need. And you will find your fit and your match. And there are labs out there that welcome all types of people. And I want to show, for instance, I can re- represent some communities, for instance, female engineers, and hopefully I can show them that there's an environment where you can feel comfortable and you can pursue this work and help push it forward. And that is supporting this work by doing it if you're capable. Yeah, I mean, diversity in in people, in research, in topics, everything, it seems so integral to what you're doing. Just like you're talking about your background in engineering, you had to get a crash course in, in 20 other subjects to be able to understand what's going on. And you can't do that alone. Exactly. People from diverse backgrounds bring unique perspectives that are essential to creativity and research. And besides, if people are capable researchers, then they should be able to find a place where they feel safe to be heard and be trained into strong, assertive academics and scientists. Yeah, absolutely. Great. So just one more question for you. We ask everybody who I interview this. So your doctor, and and what sort of emergency would somebody call you? Yeah, well, as a scientist, I don't really like to joke around too much, but I think this is a pretty fun question. So, you know, if your arc reactor ever malfunctions and you find the need to develop some new devices that fuse the human body and technology, then you call me, that. Perfect. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for this interview. Really inspiring mission that you're on. And I'm really excited to see what you do with it in the coming years, especially as technology progresses and as we learn more about the interface with the brain and and how some of this rehabilitation work and and using other things like rhythm and other parts of the brain in rehabilitation, how that goes. Thanks. Thanks for your time, Colin. Oh my gosh, thank you. 
Thanks so much for listening to Somebody Call a Doctor. Today we've been talking with Dr. Caitlin Syme about her research applying haptic stimulation for motor skill training and rehabilitation. For more information on Caitlin, check out our website, somebodycallphd.com. If you know a recent PhD candidate or graduate who is doing interesting work worth sharing, let us know by emailing us at somebodycallphd at gmail.com. See you next time on Somebody Call a Doctor.